I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem... means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a snowed in Toronto. The snow came down with abandon yesterday and the schools were off for two days. But today I'm joined by writer and thinker Nathaniel Popkin, the Philadelphia-based writer, editor and historian to look at attitudes to wealth and poverty in the US and the Democratic Party's newfound enthusiasm for talking about it. Hello Nathaniel, how are you? Hey Roy, good, how are you? I'm great. Not too bad, it's not Happy New Year, it's nice to have you back on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, so what have you been up to since since we last heard you on the show? Oh, I've been um, finishing some uh, book projects and f- trying to find some funding for some films. You know, working with a lot of different folks on different initiatives and trying to figure out how to get the money that's needed to make them happen. I believe that's called your hustling. You know, it's strange because I'm not a hustler in any way, but I spend a lot of time hustling. Probably not that great at it because I don't like to do it. Maybe no one does. I don't know. I think nobody does. But, you know, you, your work proceeds you, so you must, be, you must have some level of skill on it. But I suppose today's topic is really all about the hustle of the American working poor and the American society's attitudes around it. Over 11 million Americans are paying more than half of their income in rent. And when people are spending half of the money they make on rent... They don't have enough left to cover basic living expenses, like groceries, medicine, heat, their car payment, paying their student loans, or their bus fare. In 99% of counties in America, a person working a full-time job at the minimum wage cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment. The problem isn't that people in this country aren't working hard enough. The problem is that rent is getting more and more expensive and wages are staying the same. This is America. 
And I believe every family deserves the security of being able to keep a roof over their head, which is why as part of the solution, I've introduced a bill that we named the Rent Relief Act. Nathaniel, in this presidential cycle, the issue of poverty seems to be something that candidates are not just paying lip service to anymore. Normally, things are termed around helping the American middle class or American families, not necessarily the poorest of the poor. Why in this presidential cycle are things shaping up so differently, do you think? I'm not sure they're shaping up that differently yet. It's hard but they, but they definitely are in terms of the rhetoric, though, aren't they? It, so I think what's happening, um, there, there are a couple factors here. Um, mm-hmm. One is like a natural point at which the inequality is so great and so apparent, and the folks who perpetrate that inequality most distinctly, they can't help themselves. You know, you get Wilbur Ross uh, telling people, you know, who, who have been put on furlough and are not getting their paycheck, let them eat cake. He's the Commerce Secretary of the United States. Um, Mm. You get uh, another massive tax cut for the rich. You get Jeff Bezos petulantly walking away from New York City uh, after getting everything he would want for his company to to relocate uh, its headquarters to Queens. You know, the very rich, they're giving themselves away and they're making themselves somewhat easier targets. And, And at the same time, the issues of poverty are really being amplified. And I, I guess at some point that breaks through the sort of historic way we talk about poverty in the United States, which is to not really talk about it, the fetishization of the middle class. And I'll talk about a little bit of that later. There's some mm-hmm. odd things about the notion of the middle class in the United States that sort of that, that inform this discussion and, and really limit the possibilities for looking at class issues most distinctly. Um, and I think what we have right now is a series of factors and then, gladly, a set of people who know how to frame ideas clearly and mm-hmm. um, distinctly. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one of them. Uh, I just watched the video of her um, confronting some folks in a House, uh, House of Representatives committee about how it's easy to game the system if you're really wealthy. Extraordinary video. So she's mm. got this skill. And, of course, other people are capable of learning from her and others. Bernie Sanders gets a lot of credit. And finally, this is breaking through. If I want to run a campaign that is entirely funded by corporate political action committees, is, that, is there anything that legally prevents me from doing that? No. So there's nothing stopping me from being entirely funded by a corporate PAC, say, from the fossil fuel industry, the healthcare industry, big pharma. I'm entirely 100% lobbyist PAC funded. Okay, so let's say I'm a really, really bad guy. And let's say I have some skeletons in my closet that I need to cover up so that I can get elected. Mr. Smith, is it true that you wrote this article, this opinion piece for the Washington Post entitled, These Payments to Women Were Unseemly, That Doesn't Mean They Were Illegal? Well, I can't see the piece, but I wrote a piece under that headline in the Post, so I assume that's right. Okay, great. So, green light for hush money. I can do all sorts of terrible things. It's totally legal right now for me to pay people off. That money is considered speech. 
So I use my special interest dark money funded campaign to pay off folks that I need to pay off and get elected. So now I'm elected, now I'm in. I've got the power to draft, lobby, and shape the laws that govern the United States of America. Fabulous. Now, is there any hard limit that I have? Perhaps, uh, Mrs. Hobart Flynn, is there any hard limit that I have in terms of what legislation I'm allowed to touch? Are there any limits on the laws that I can write or influence uh, based on the uh, special interest funds that I accepted to finance my campaign and get me elected in the first place? There's no limit. So there's none. So I can be totally funded by oil and gas. I can be totally funded by big pharma. Come in, write big pharma laws, and there's no limits to that whatsoever. That's right. Okay, so awesome. Now, uh, now, Mr. Marabani, the last thing I want to do is get rich with as little work possible. That's really what I'm trying to do as the bad guy, right? So is there anything preventing me from holding stocks, say, in an oil or gas company, and then writing laws to deregulate that, that industry and cause, you know, that could potentially cause the stock value to soar and accrue a lot of money in that time? You could do that. So I could do that. I could do that now with the way our current laws are, are set up. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. Is it possible that any elements of this story apply to our current government and our current public servants right now? Yes. Yes. Once you frame things, people can see, oh, my kids' schools are terrible. Why is that? And then I think it begins to become clearer. Okay, let's kind of slightly wind that back. Obviously, you've mentioned uh, Bernie Sanders, and, and to me, he's somewhat of the godfather of this new slew of Democratic presidential hopeful candidates being able, feeling that they're, they're able actually to come up not just with, with lip service, as I said before, but with concrete uh, policy ideas to alleviate poverty but also in, in a funny way so so is Donald Trump actually uh, because the one thing that he did do in the last campaign was to say that the system has screwed you over he didn't have any concrete plans and ideas as to how the white rural poor could be alleviated from the poverty from their poverty other than saying we're going to bring coal back you know but at least that's allowed hasn't it that's let a certain kind of genie out of the bottle before we go into specific ideas, and you've talked about effective communication, and that's exactly something which AOC definitely has. She has a way of distilling all of this. Do you think that the Democrats can create a bumper sticker as effective for a making America great again in this run for, for 2020? It needs to be distilled, doesn't it? Yeah, I actually think that finally the Democrats are a little less tongue-tied in mm -hmm. projecting a message. And um, yes, I mean, because if you go back to the New Deal and the way in which the New Deal was presented to Americans, it was pretty controversial, actually. But it, the, the mid-century democratic message was for everyone. And um, it came in exact opposition to the robber barons who had controlled the American economy for so long. So. I suspect that the Democrats are going to figure out how to distill, perfect word, the message so that it can resonate and connect with regular people, everyday people. Mm. Ah. 
I think probably some of your listeners would be saying, ah, they're not capable of doing any of that. And, and time after time after time, they haven't been able to. But um, there are a set of reasons why I think it's more likely to happen now. And um, they have some messengers. I mean, almost all of those people who have declared their candidacies are capable of speaking in a way that Democrats in the past were not. It doesn't mean that they're not conflicted themselves. You know, a Cory Booker is conflicted by his longstanding alliance with the pharmaceutical industry, which is a manifestation of that he's from New Jersey. And the pharmaceutical industry is a very powerful lobby in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think for me, interestingly, you've you've kind of put this is an analogy that we're in the age of the robber barons. And I suppose that that is kind of the gilded age, the late 19th century. I don't know. It's 1882. I don't know, like 1910. And Zuckerberg is a Carnegie and Bezos is a Vanderbilt, etc. Because when a lot of people analyze the political turmoil that we're going through, not necessarily the economic but the political, it's always the 1930s is the, is the example that they use. But, but the 30s, already you had had a labor union movement of some consideration for a while and a, and mm-hmm. a long process of conflict between um, factory owners and labor unions. A lot of organizing among workers happened in the 20s. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to what we we're talking about as maybe perhaps more analogous, into the late 19th century, labor unions um, are not as powerful. They are not as representative of workers. And, I mean, that's really where we are today. Part of the reason for inequality, of course, is the decline of labor unions. Mm. Um, and so the, the wage is gone. That's why people are hustling. They're hustling because all of the, um, all of the things that unions had, uh, had gained for workers has really been disrupted effectively all the way up and down the line. Uh, and that you are absolutely spot on, because when you look at the, the period of sustained economic growth for working class families in America, it is from the end of the Second World War to, to the early 1970s. And that is a time when labor unions were actually at their strongest. So they were actively campaigning and successfully getting a fair deal for American workers. And what we have obviously now is a situation whereby income and wealth inequality has skyrocketed since and it's not by accident that labor unions are are weak in this period yeah and and it's not none of it's by accident because as soon as it became very clear that the american economy was producing more uh, stable equality right it was income levels had flattened the Mm. ratio between the ceo's salary and the line worker salary had diminished uh, as soon as that became very apparent, certain actors who's, who are still very powerful r- rose to the fore in American politics. And I'm thinking of some of the dark money folks like the Koch brothers. They began to respond and fight back for the idea that capital should be allowed to be centralized into a few hands and that free enterprise meant that anyone should be able to get as rich as he or she wishes and can. I think it's somewhat ironic that we, we seem to be talking about a period, the, the late 40s to the early 70s, um, when uh, America was great. Are we going to make America great again? Mm-hmm. Are we going to make America equal again then, Nathaniel? 
Yeah, I mean, it's an anomaly in American history. And sometimes I'll talk about this with my father because he was born in the 30s and came of age as a, a young man and lived so substantially, you know, as a maturing adult in that period in which, by lots of measures, we were a much more equal society. By lots of measures, we were less equal. Um, including gender and race. But mm-hmm. um, but in in the sort of class aspect, it was a kind of better day. And if that's your baseline, you're wondering, wow, what has just happened? But what has just happened is a return to much more of the norm for the United States. Okay. All right. So now you've sent a chill down my spine. So, okay, as a Brit, give me some American tropes um, around the poor you know what does america why are people poor in america what would what would americans say the reasons are for that because this is a land of boundless opportunity of course what people will say is complicated but what you're asking is that people will often say that one a person is poor or doesn't do well in life or is a failure or is stuck in poverty because they're lazy they're not willing to work hard they're not willing to seek opportunities They want things handed to them. Mm -hmm. These are the tropes that are most often sort of propagated by the gated community wealthy. And some of those people have are, are, you know, sort of nouveau riche people who, you know, hit it, but with some business idea or something like that, or, or perhaps they're more legacy wealth. But those are the people that imagine in their minds that they themselves had risen to wealth in the Benjamin Franklin model, pulling oneself up by the bootstraps, working really hard and earning every penny. You know, when Jeff Bezos the other day wrote his um, screed against the extortion that was happening uh, mm-hmm. of him by, um, by the, the National Enquirer. The National Enquirer, thank you. Uh-huh. What did he refer to? He referred to the fact that when he was starting Amazon, he delivered the packages himself to the post office. That's his bootstrapping mentality. That he that says that it wasn't because of the education system that he benefited from. It wasn't because of the infrastructure that he benefited from. It wasn't because of the regulation, either workplace regulations or environmental regulations or whatever mm. that he benefited from. It was only his own determination, will, and intelligence that turned Amazon into, uh, and himself into the richest man in the world. There is something else. And that is a funny trope among the middle class, middle class to upper middle class. It, that is for those people who are comfortable, you know, who are well off and enjoy all the benefits of the American econ- economy and society as it's currently structured. There is a real hatred among those people at thinking of themselves as well-off. They're much more likely to want to think of themselves as middle-class or even working-class and that they work really hard because almost all Americans work really hard and work all the time. And so for them, there's a real discomfort with being wealthy uh, and and a kind of denial of it. I'm going to hold you to that thought i'm going to come back onto that because one of the things you said which i I found kind of quite interesting was in effect what you're talking about is a almost like a an economic dysmorphia where people don't actually realize their own situation or actively deny it 
And one of the things which I've always been really struck by are, let's call them traditionally the white rural working class and working poor, that from a European perspective, those should be left of centre voters, but they're not. And, and when you look at the states with the highest rates of poverty in the US, they're in the South. So it's Mississippi, it's Louisiana, Kentucky, West Virginia, Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia. And then uh, the other three are New Mexico, Arizona and Oklahoma. Now, looking at all of those states, I think two of them are purple-ish, but the rest of them are, are, are deep red. That is the trick that Reagan Democrats have been sold, isn't it? That to hell with your economic interests. This is all about your identity interests. And though the right accuses the left of identity politics all the time, that what your average, let's say, poor Arkansas voter is being sold is that um, your cultural identity is being threatened by the other to hell with your economic interests. And they all think that welfare recipients are the other. They're black, aren't they? They're black and brown people, where, of course, they're the highest recipients of government welfare. It's really one of the oldest tricks of American life, this thing that you describe. It goes all the way back to the beginning, when Scots-Irish Presbyterian people Mm -hmm. moved from the coastal cities where they had immigrated to, and they pushed out west. Um, into the hinterlands of Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York and the like. And what happened, and we're talking 1760s, so we're talking a long time ago, but it imprinted, so it imprinted the idea of the American uh, mindset as being pioneering, that is, go out, seize the land, no one will mess with you, you get, you get what you get, you get what you earn, you get what you, mm-hmm. you get the land that you cut down the trees. Whatever it is, it's yours under God's great kingdom. And that's a very powerful myth. Uh, It's the myth that carries through to Andrew Jackson and carries through, as President Trump has embraced, that, that kind of chip on your shoulder, no one can mess with me, I should be in charge of my life. Well, all the way back in the 18th century, in the 1760s, when those people went west, they, what did they encounter? They encountered native people, and they had very violent conflicts with those native people. And when the elite were asked to intervene, they often sided with the native people, particularly if they were Quaker and they were more um, inclined towards tolerance with those native people. Mm-hmm. So then you have the elite, the wealthiest in your central uh, cities the people who are making the most money and are most um, responsible for the culture of this new nation or new place, not yet a nation, they're aligning in some cases with the native people at the expense of these pioneers. The pioneers very quickly develop a chip on their shoulder. And that I think is a myth that passes all the way down to, to the present day in some of those places that you described. Uh, you know, it's interesting you should say, you should frame your answer the way that you have, because from a European perspective, whenever we try and understand uh, the obsession with guns in America or your relatively weak welfare state, the pioneering spirit is always one which is invoked. 
and and it's very easy to get um, sucked along by that and say, well, of course, then that makes sense. But Canada's a pretty pioneering country. So's Australia. Both of those countries had indigenous peoples that they needed to uh, to overcome, shall we say, slaughter, displace, move along, whatever, use whatever adjective you want. Um, but they st- but they believe in society much more than the American myth seems to. Yeah, I mean, the missing piece really is um, our political system, in a, in a sense, um, mm-hmm. being excessively decentralized, and also the way in which money, and therefore power, has been allowed to dominate the political system in this country. It certainly was in the 19th century, and it is again today, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has made very clear. So I think that's the difference. The difference is that the moneyed interests have done a couple things. One, through things like Citizens United, which means that the Supreme Court case, which means that a corporation is um, imagined to be the same as an individual. Their freedom of expression is the same. Their right Mm -hmm. to freedom of expression are the same. Therefore, they can, and money is their expression, so they can spend as much money on the political system, the electoral system, as they want. And that has had extraordinary ramifications. And it's tampered down regulations. It's tampered down electoral participation by people. I would say in Canada and Australia, the, the electoral participation percentage percentages are much, much higher than they are in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's extraordinary disenfranchisement, which has been bought basically by powerful interests. So that's the opening through which this myth has been perpetrated and allowed to um, continue. And and then I would say the other really powerful thing that, of course, you referred to and is essential to understanding all of this goes back to slavery and and goes goes to race. Um, and, uh, And there is an element of that reason why a young working farmer, Confederate person would go fight a war um, and perhaps lose his life for the interests of a plantation owner. And somewhere in that calculation that it would be better to lose one's life for the interest of that plantation owner than it, than it would be to eliminate slavery and therefore value a laborer, a worker, that's part of this as well. You know, it, it's pretty deeply set. Mm. But I suppose if, if you look back at that as an example, and I think it's a very valid one, what you have is, again, it's um, not arguing for your economic interests. You're, uh, you're fighting for, you're trying to defend your identity interests because it would have been economically in a white working person's interest in let's say Georgia in 1861 to have the slaves freed because actually the slaves acted as um, a hold on 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 a white person a white working person's income because they didn't need to be paid so actually economically it held them down and uh, so you can't so so of course you're not fighting for that you're fighting because you are white and you are better than them and you're fighting for your homeland you're fighting for your own state but we can take some 
pretty big pot shots at the billionaire class and Rutger Bergman um, had a, an incendiary kind of viral video at Davos where he basically said that philanthropy and tax avoidance are two sides of the same coin. Um, we're really starting to stick it to the billionaire class now, aren't we? And uh, rhetorically, but are we going to be able to translate that into meaningful legislation? And then, and if we do, how can we even frame that? It's going to be difficult. I want to say one more thing in regard to um, the previous comment, and I'm going to mm-hmm. step right into this okay. uh, discussion of the billionaires and what to do about them. But, um, you know, when labor unions were first organizing in 1820s, 1830s, and then across the rest of that century and into the 20th century, all the way into period of the war, of, of World War II, the Second World War, uh, labor unions were racist. And so uh, every time that com- the Communist Party would try to organize in the United States, it ran up against this problem, that white workers did not allow black workers to partake. There have been many, many times across American history where black and white workers with the same interests could have united but were not allowed to. And so mm-hmm. that, that, that racism part of this is really powerful. I don't think, and, and, yeah. and I think, and I think that that's an interesting point to make because if we take a snapshot of politically where left and right sits in the Western world, you'd always think that let's say the Democratic Party was the party which was for peace and love and kumbaya, and absolutely historically, it absolutely that it wasn't, and that um, specifically labor unions um, actually were bastions of uh, white working class identity to the exclusion of of others. Again, for those kind of sectional identity issues as opposed to necessarily economic. Those were the Reagan Democrats, really. Yeah, and if you go back to, um, uh, I'd say, the the late 19th century, as you said, when labor unions were really organizing in, in in America, you absolutely see that what they want to do is always exclude the latest wave of immigrants that come into America from from getting jobs in in industries because they see them as driving wages down. That's right. Hmm. Billionaires. Some of what the issue that sets the United States apart from Canada or Australia is and is kind of um, the thing that we've protected the openness of our economy to a greater degree than other places. You know, we've. The, the, the free enterprise notion um, has, has a has a ideological um, backing it has um, historical backing we it is the result of that sort of um, care about that idea as just an idea has led to the US having a very dynamic, economy, a flexible economy, an economy that's able to adapt to new situations really quickly, that produces incredible numbers of jobs and provides a sense of an open society. Of course, a hard and harsh and fragmented society without very much social cohesion whatsoever, but it has produced this thing that um, creates wealth at a monstrous pace. We kind of believe in that, right? So 
one reason why there's why you can't build a very effective class-based response is that everyone thinks that they can get rich. And uh, there are enough examples of people that everyone knows of people who, you know, exploited the system and worked really hard and got rich or got some semblance of, of rich. So I think that's part of it. And it's not just like a minor part of it. It, it. You know, the fact is that the American economy, far different from the European economy, has been able to adapt and is dynamic. And mm. people are afraid of messing with that. And President Obama was quite afraid of, of messing with that. And he, he always talked about the sort of tension in American life between individualism and community. And that's another way of expressing all of this. So mm-hmm. um, it's not so easy just to vilify the free enterprise system on the face of it. However, over but you know what, though, what, what I don't understand, and, and we have this in the UK, so I'm not throwing a, uh, a stone at the American um, glass house here and saying that we're without this sin. How can it be that somebody can work 40 hours a week and still be technically living in poverty so they need to be on food stamps and government assistance? Aren't we just subsidizing capitalism there in the most perverse way so we're taking our tax dollars as you americans would say to fund people to exist who are doing 40 hours worth of work so we're not talking about you know that lazy bum that's you know that made a couple of bad decisions in life and maybe can't work won't work doesn't want to work we're not even talking about that talking about that hard-working american family who are trying to participate in the American dream. And we are letting the corporate class get away with paying not a living wage. How can any society square that with itself? The star of the American leftist movement, Bernie Sanders, is at war with Amazon, the world's largest online retailer, accusing the company of not treating its workers fairly. It is important. Uh, to take a look at the power and influence that Amazon has. The answer is that all over this country, Amazon employees are paid wages so low that they are having a real hard time getting by. They are forced to depend upon taxpayer-funded programs, and you know who pays for those programs? You do. This isn't just empty rhetoric either. Sanders announced that he'd be introducing legislation that would require these big corporations to cover all federal benefits their employees receive from the government, like food stamps and public housing, if they can't pay them a living wage. The poison in our system, a noxious poison in our system that comes from far right-wing think tanks that says that any dollar that is earned that isn't earned by your paycheck, i.e. something that comes from a benefit from, from the government in some way, is illegitimate. Uh, you know, over the last few years since Trump has come into office, several states have put on work requirements for Medicaid uh, and other social programs, food stamps, um, because there is this idea, it's not based on reality, it's not based on data, it's not based on the way the actual system functions. And it's not also based upon any other American or human ideals about caring for the poor or social stability or uh, decreasing crime or whatever other social goals are eviscerated by the idea that 
you must be earning your money through work in the private sector. And that blows through the system. And it, it, not only must you be working, but you're not a good American unless you work exceptionally hard, work, and you're always working, right? Because we're always working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's been a, like a, a, a separation between or a new distinction made in American life where the idea of being a citizen, being a community member, being a human being, being a, a loving person, being a caretaker, whatever other expression of humanness we could think of is really being substantially overwhelmed by the idea that you are a consumer. Well, kind of interestingly, one of the voices that go to say, go to agree with you is actually Tucker Carlson. I bumped into a couple of interviews with him and he somewhat surprised me. So if you take to put to one side his identity politics shtick and uh, keeping America American, you know, he does rail against Jeff Bezos. He says he's the richest man in the world. Many of his employees are poor and we are paying their welfare benefits. Um, he's not the only tech billionaire offloading his payroll costs onto taxpayers. This is an indefensible scam. Why is only Bernie talking about this? Those are words of Tucker Carlson. So these ideas are gaining traction on some aspects of the right as well, aren't they? And isn't it a shame that Tucker Carlson, with his large and powerful platform, can only imagine himself talking to white people? Uh, what a shame. Because that what you just said is an important aspect of, uh, you know, of Bernie Sanders' ideas of Mm -hmm. other members of the Democratic Party's ideas who are willing to think about uh, people who are not only just white people. That's a shame because here again is the chance. You know, this is the old trade union or craft union saying we're only here for, um, for people with white skin. If he didn't play identity politics, Mm. if he was able to understand or see or care that People who live in cities or small cities, big cities, um, old line suburbs that are um, worn down and where the jobs are, are not so great, and the, those are people of color and, and immigrants. If he could see those people as just as hardworking, just as exploited, just as desperate to move their children from out of poverty, move them up, um, wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it be incredible? It would move us so much closer to having social cohesion. I I think what Tucker Carlson would say is that when I think of America, I don't see color, but you've got to sign up to American values. And the American values that you need to sign up to are ones which he's prescribed were prevalent in the 1950s. So, you know, so he would never couch it as you've got to be white but you've got to sign up to American values, haven't you? So whatever that actually means, so to speak. But again, you know, that was a period where the top rate of tax in the US was above 90%. Correct. You, you sound like a socialist country. Yeah, and that, in, the, in the 1950s, which <laughs> we went around and, and asked um, most Americans, what was the heyday of the United States? Mm-hmm. I don't think this is what... Trump was referring to, 
when he said, make America great again. I think he was referring to either the 80s when he came of age or the 19th century when robber barons were allowed to do whatever they want. But Mm -hmm. um, the 50s, most people would say the 50s, or actually, let's say most white Americans would say the 1950s. Yes. uh, In part because of the Hollywood image of that period and the sense of well-being that came after the war, although it also ignores the the reality of the Korean War and, and all of that. But most white Americans would say the 1950s. And then if you ask them what was the what was the top tax bracket in that era, they would not say 90%. No, no. Well, it has to be said, when I saw that that video clip and the guy just, you know, when uh, the guy, Bell, turns around and says, yeah, and when has a 70% tax rate ever helped any economy? And the guy just says, well, the United States, you know, 1950s. I was surprised too, which shows you that we've all been been indoctrinated. Sorry, that's the best word for it, indoctrinated by this laissez-faire Reaganomic view that uh, taxes are an immoral way of redistributing wealth and creating social cohesion. This is my first time at Davos and uh, and uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water, right? <laughs> there, was, there was only one panel, actually. Thank well, we've had two. You're the second well, of well, our panels. There, there so was only one panel. Let's go there. One. One panel hidden away in the media center that was actually about tax avoidance. Yeah. I was about I was one of the 15 participants. So <laughs> something needs to change here. I mean, ten, 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes. Mm-hmm. Taxes, taxes. We need to, mm-hmm. I mean, just two days ago, there was a billionaire in here, uh, what's his name, Michael Dell. And uh, he asked the question like, Name me one country where a top marginal tax rate of 70% has actually worked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a historian. The United States, that's where it has actually worked. In the 1950s, during <laughs> Republican President Eisenhower, you know, the war veteran, the top marginal tax rate in the US was 91% mm-hmm. for people like Michael Dell. You know, the top estate tax for people like Michael Dell was more than 70%. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid philanthropy schemes we can invite bono once more but come on it's we got to be talking about taxes that's it taxes 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 all the rest is bullshit in, in my opinion if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, and, and again, it's interesting, when you, even when you look back at all those uh, films that like Stand By Me that iconify the 1950s it's all about school teachers isn't it and being at school and actually school teachers were valued schools were a central point of how you could move up the economic chain you know they were the, the social glue and we've completely not utterly uh, kind of taken that away so i think for me just as we start to wind down i think it's really interesting that you've got sherrod brown kamala harris You've got Cory Booker, etc. All of these um, prospective Democratic presidential hopefuls have their various schemes to create a baseline for America's poor. And, and I think it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting that if we take it that every Democrat now believes in universal health care, it's just how you achieve it, that is one way which will lessen the poverty gap because people will not go bankrupt for the lack of being able to pay for a bill and dare I say and die you know which the rest of the world just sees as immoral just how you can have this system but it was explained to me really well by somebody once saying that the reason why some working I'm going to say middle class Americans are against universal health care is because they think that they've earned it they've got it through their job so they've earned this right, so why would they want everybody else to have it? But ultimately, as a societal good, I don't see how you can actually you know, argue against it. But it, this does feel to me like a, a new wind is blown across your land, sir. You know, it really does that you can actually talk about these issues without somebody turning around and saying, you're a dangerous radical. Yeah, you're absolutely right in, in that regard. Like, what is a, a vein of um, rhetoric has been opened possibly by Bernie. Maybe there yeah. were other people, other factors, but a new vein is open. And that's extraordinarily exciting. And it's interesting that that vein is opening where the Democrats that you talked about and many, many other ones, particularly at 
the more local level and state houses and whatnot, they're also talking the same way. Mm-hmm. We're talking about thousands, hundreds and thousands of um, new legislators who are speaking about this issue, particularly about inequality and then also about climate change in, in ways, because these things are linked so much, in ways that Democrats could not find the right terminology for. They were put on the defensive always immediately by Republican politicians, governmental overreach, communist, socialist, coddling of the poor, whatever it uh, was that was put out there was really noxious and very powerful. And Democrats didn't know how to respond. And at the same time, they were compromised by their own neoliberal instincts to coddle up to financial uh, agent, uh, financial institutions and banks and corporations. Mm. So there was a, a slight getting off of message because of that. So now it's possible. Now these things can be talked about and they are being talked about and some things will change because of them. My fear, however, is that um, the ju- is the judiciary because all of these things ultimately will be litigated uh, at state level, at um, the, the federal court level and at the Supreme Court level. And uh, not only is it very likely that there's going to be conservative majority governing the Supreme Court for the rest of my lifetime, uh, simply because of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania um, and the way they voted in 2016, um, but also that this, the, the, the court system is being jammed with really right-wing um, judges and who can trip up all kinds of things from environmental regulations to regulations on financial institutions to tax schemes and the like. And we'll see how that plays out. It, it is worrying. So the only solution, I think, for those who want to reduce inequality is through legislation uh, and political pressure because political pressure does change the reality on the ground. It changes the baseline. Mm. Just just before we kind of finish up, just on the Supreme Court, and again, long-time listeners of this podcast uh, will know that I, I have opined on the Supreme Court on a few times, and uh, we have a Supreme Court in the United Kingdom. It's only been in existence, well, it's only been called the Supreme Court for about 15 years. It used to be called the, the Law Lords, and no one, bar no one, can name one person on the supreme court it's not tenure for life i think it's five years maximum 10 and then you have to retire i'm going to say between 70 and 75 i I forget and the the reason why i forget is because it's i'm not going to say it's not an important part of the government of the united kingdom it is an important part but it's so new uh, that it's not in the dna of, of the typical kind of british voter you just don't know this stuff all but what we do know is that um we don't know any of the names of, of these appointees, and they are appointees by the judiciary as well. It's not a political thing at mm-hmm. all. It's completely depoliticized. So there's an interesting compare and contrast considering that this program fundamentally is, is about that. But then also at the position of Justice Roberts, interestingly, with the vote this week that he sided with the liberal judges and he's a, an arch conservative, that many people are speculating that he's playing a much longer game and realising, considering that he's chastised the uh, Trump administration a few times now about politicising the Supreme Court, that 
tactically, every now and then he votes with the Liberals to de to try and depoliticize the Supreme Court, which I think is absolutely fascinating. You know, that he's taken a pressure cooker out of the American system, knowing that that ultimately the Supreme Court, not that it needs to bend to the will of the people, but it needs to be as seem as unpartisan as possible. Otherwise, um, it will become uh, another American problem. So, yeah, well, so seen as illegitimate. Yeah, I, I was being polite, but I'm, I'm a Brit, so I, I I can use a lot of words, and you can just come straight to the point and say that it wouldn't be seen as legitimate. But so, so just to finish up, Nathaniel, are we talking about the Democratic Party putting forward schemes ultimately to save capitalism? from itself? In a sense, I suspect so. I mean, uh, I, I don't think we're, I, I don't think we're talking about revolution here uh, in terms of, um, you know. Well, I, I, you know what, let, let, I slightly disagree with you. There's, there's been a revolution in attitude. It's not about people throwing rocks through windows and burning down Wall Street. Ten years ago, after the financial crash, with Occupy Wall Street, it almost felt like a revolution was about to happen in America. This isn't a physical revolution, but definitely a, a revolution of thought where it's taken maybe political thinkers, mainly on the left, but some on the right, 10 years to catch up with that feeling yeah. that something has gone drastically wrong. Well, it's true. And it was um, it certainly became apparent after the financial cri during the financial crisis and during Occupy. Mm. Now, I would say I'm going to change my answer a little bit and say that it's in this very moment quite hard to tell. All of these things that we've been talking about today are happening on a worldwide scale, right? So yeah. white working class nationalistic anger that's exploited by certain people and, and certainly by the Russian government in many countries. The destabilization of governmental institutions, uh, the rampant power of neoliberal capital that uh, is so effective at destroying, you know, things in, in one's community life, the mom and pop shop, that basic baseline elements of life are so easily destroyed by rapacious And community, so yeah. All that's happening worldwide. And the other thing that's happening worldwide is the ecological crisis. And the reason I say I want to change my answer is because as we grasp the ecological crisis, its scale, its mm -hmm. depth, and as we actually more and more each day that goes by begin to suffer its consequences, there is no telling what the political landscape will look like in five years. It, it literally could require a revolution to disengorge ourselves from big oil and gas. And that would be the only way for us to overcome or at least limit or have some positive movement towards stopping global warming as it is currently happening. So that's the only way. We got, we, we got to stop using oil, fossil fuels. So... What, how is that going to happen? Maybe it could happen by really smart regulation, as you say, saving capitalism from itself. Okay, could, but probably isn't going to.
Nathaniel Popkin, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and sharing your thoughts and feelings on this new climate in left of centre American politics. Just before we go, sir, why don't you tell us what you've been up to recently and where people can find you on social media? Oh, I'm at Nathaniel Popkin on Twitter, probably the best place. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the ecological crisis. Um, I think that... um, one of the ideas I've been I've been working with two ideas in regard to that. One is hearkening back to Hannah Arendt's the banality of evil and the way that we're also complicit in this uh, and not able to kind of clear our heads and think think about this in an, any kind of objective way to act. And also that while the world of technology, the world of Amazon, the world of stuff makes us feel like we're living in this remarkable age of technological gain and technological progress and in so many ways life is so good we're actually right now uh, on the cusp of an age of loss where where things that we've taken for granted as earthlings are disappearing and some of those things i.e. insects and glaciers are going to fundamentally change life on earth altogether don't know how that will end we're supposed to end on an uplifting note Everyone should go see the film called The Shoplifters, which Uh is uh, a Japanese film uh, that is really quite relevant to the discussion we've had today about class, survival, and under the capitalist system that we're living under. Honesty, love, family, community. um, I'm only going to recommend that my listeners go and see it if you tell me it ends on a positive note. It ends in a beautiful way. Fantastic. Go see the film, everybody. Brilliant. Nathaniel, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. No doubt we'll hear from you again very soon. Thanks, Royfield. Great to be here. And just before we go, folks, don't forget, you can write us a positive review by going on to Apple Podcasts. Go and write us that five-star review. You know we deserve it. I burst my blood vessels doing this show, getting you great and influential thinkers from all around the world to talk about the US, the UK and also world politics. Again, right, sir, that great review on on Apple Podcasts. And also, why don't you go and tell a friend to go and listen to Mid-Atlantic. See you all again soon. Bye-bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 